This is Who Makes a Podcast. Conversations with your favorite podcast hosts about who they are, the shows they make, and why they make them. I'm your host, Chris Cookley, and my guest today is Andrew Kerr. Andrew is the founder of FiBuyRia.com and a seasoned real estate investor and nonprofit director. With his successes in real estate, he decided to share his experiences in his podcast, The House Hacking Podcast. After working in residential and small commercial banking for nearly seven years, he knew it wasn't his passion. Because of his financial success in real estate investing, he was able to pursue his true passions, nonprofit work, and traveling the world. In this episode, we talk about what house hacking is, SEO and growth through organic search for a podcast, and the Goldilocks guest selection, getting a small guest, a medium guest, a big guest, and how different guests serve different purposes for your audience and your growth. We also talk about how Andrew uses a team to edit his episodes and speed up his process, and he answers his own famous six questions at the end. And now here is my conversation with Andrew Kerr. Andrew, welcome to Who Makes a Podcast. Chris, man, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to talk with you this evening. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here. Uh, I was telling you beforehand, you know, I came across you listening to another podcast, All the Hacks with Chris Hutchins. And, you know, that's that's how I came to, to know who you are uh, and started listening to your podcast, which is great. For my listeners who don't know about you, could you tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're from originally, and, and where you are now? Yeah, born in California, grew up in North Carolina, and then have been in New Orleans, Louisiana for uh, six years, seven years, something like that. Um, I sort of, when I got out of high school, I took the alternative route of not going to college. And at 20 years old, this is back in 2002, I'm a sort of older millennial. I ended up buying my first home, was a partner in a mortgage company by 23, and then had that sort of quarter-life crisis and ended up in the nonprofit sector. I went from making great money to making no money. And that's when I really sort of built up a real estate portfolio and then started documenting some of what I was doing via the website. And that's sort of what led to the podcast that we're going to talk about today. How did you end up in New Orleans? What brought you there? As a little bit of a mix. So, you know, my, my wife and I both loved the city. She had volunteered here, you know, a ton after Katrina. I loved the city. You know, even before we knew each other, we just sort of loved the city. And then around six, seven years ago, I got recruited to work for a nonprofit in charge of this multi-state territory. And they said, you know, we'd love for you to come work with us. And you can live anywhere in this multi-state territory is essentially from Chicago all the way down to the Gulf Coast. And okay. being a young couple in love, you know, New Orleans, the food, the culture, the music. Yeah. I mean, great, great place to live. Do you have a, a favorite neighborhood in New Orleans? I've been once and it was a, a long weekend and it was a ton of fun, um, but we didn't get to see too much of the city. Yeah, you know, it changes. So originally when we moved here, we we're in the lower garden district. Of course, you love that. Then we are in uptown and now we're in uh, the Mir Mirany Bywater area. So it seems like we end up loving whatever part of the city we spend the most time in. Yeah, probably one of the best sandwiches I've ever had was in New Orleans. And I can't remember the name of the place, but it was like a little convenience store almost on the on a corner somewhere. 
and uh, they had a little po' boy shop in the back of the store, and it was it was phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, we have tons of little shops like that. How did you decide that house hacking was something that you wanted to do? Was it just familiarity with the mortgage industry and and real estate because of that angle? How did you decide to pursue house hacking? Uh, it was all by accident. So you know, back when I sort of bought my first house, you know, this is 2002. The internet's just barely growing. You don't have websites and podcasts like you do today. And I was literally at this point where here I am, 19, 20 years old, working in the mortgage industry with a guy that said, hey, you're killing it. You're hungry. You're ambitious. You know, why don't you keep learning? Then I started doing the loan officer sales side of it. And something just clicked one day where I realized, wait, I'm doing loan paperwork for folks who are going out and buying a house and their mortgage payment is cheaper than what I would pay for rent. So, you know, talk with my folks a bit. They gave me some advice and I ended up buying a townhouse. And oddly enough, when I went to buy this townhouse, it was a new construction community. They had like five or six different floor plans you could choose from. I chose the floor plan that was geared towards you know, the 55 and 60 year olds and older, uh-huh. you know, it had a first floor master bedroom. And I was like, oh yeah, this is the one I want. And they're like, no, no, no. That's usually for the older folks that don't want to walk up the steps. And I was like, no, uh, this is the one I want. And they're like, okay. But to me, it was like, I can live downstairs in the master bedroom. And then the two bedrooms upstairs, I can rent it to my friend and they'll cover, you know, half the mortgage plus, you know, chip in for some utilities. And that would be cheaper than what I was paying in uh, would pay in rent if we were living together. And he could have sort of a bedroom and living room upstairs, and then we'd only be sharing the kitchen space. And that's really how I got started. And you know, now I've done four house hacks. Um, the last two, and our current one was with my wife. And it was just something that we've always come back to as a way to keep your living costs low while you build other wealth. And for me, house hacking gave me the opportunity to travel, gave me the opportunity to do do nonprofit work. It gave me the ability to save capital to invest in other types of uh, real estate. And what would you say, if somebody's not familiar with this at all, how would you define what a house hack is? Like, it it, it seems like it could be a a fairly broad term. So what would you say qualifies as a house hack? Yeah, the, the way I really simplify it is you just make a slightly different choice with your housing. So your housing generates some sort of income to offset your living costs. And, you know, on our show, we break down sort of the six main ways to do it. But, you know, the idea is, you know, for me in that very first one was, hey, I've got a three bedroom place. I'm going to rent out half of it to offset part of my living costs. You know, and then my second house hack was a four bedroom, four bath condo near a university. I rented out the three rooms and that actually generated more than my mortgage. So I actually had cash flow and then turned that into a long-term rental. Then we went on to an older corner store that we converted into multiple uh, high-end apartments with an outside building that we rented. And it's basically, you know, again, you're, you're making a choice with your housing. So that property, no matter the shape, size, location, how you want to do it, it just generates some sort of income so your overall living costs are lower than they would normally be. So you were house hacking maybe before you even knew that term. Yeah, yeah. To me, it was just this, hey, me and my buddy can go rent a place. I can own a place for cheaper. And then I know there's these other benefits that I didn't really know the extent of them, but I was like, oh yeah, I get a write-off 
for mortgage interest and you know they're you get to write off property taxes and then debt pay down. And you know, at the time I knew it was some sort of benefit, but again, I just didn't understand the extent of it. And you're in New Orleans. Uh, New Orleans got hit with a category four hurricane. Was it last year? How are yeah, your yeah. house hacks or how's your house doing down there after that happened? Did you get hit with that? Uh, we did, you know, luckily nothing. Uh, oddly enough, the year before uh, we actually had some water damage from a, a, a hurricane, but it was pretty minimal stuff. You know, we had like yard cleanup and had to readjust some doors and a little bit of water or some like flashing had blown off and some shingles had come up, but you know, nothing to the point where it was serious enough where we actually had a file and insurance claim, a couple hundred dollars, um, where, you know, on the other side of the city, people were losing their roofs to a little further West, you know, whole whole homes were uh, being destroyed. Well, that's good that you dodged that. Do you have a renter living with you now? Is that how that how your current hack works? Yeah. So in the Bywater historic area near the French Quarter, we bought this property for about $380,000. It was a duplex. So uh, basically it was divided in half. A three-bedroom, two-bathroom on one side, three-bedroom, two-bathroom on the other side. And when we bought it, one side was empty. One side had a tenant in it. So we did some of the exterior renovations and we renovated the downstairs and then fenced off the backyard. So that way we each had our own private uh, outdoor space. And then now we're actually in the middle of renovating the other side as that tenant moved out. Um, And then we'll be, uh, as that place is renovated, we'll be able to increase the rents uh, quite a bit on that place to where the other side will cover almost all of our mortgage. So, you know, we'll be living in a $700,000 house for Two hundred, three hundred dollars a month. Yeah, that's hard to beat. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's that that's good math to have for you. Are you typically flipping like one property into another, like you're selling one to buy the next one, or are you just stacking properties on top of each other? It's changed over the years, and I actually sold off almost all of my portfolio back in uh, 2016. So, you know, a, a lot of folks when they think about real estate investing, they think it's you know something that's hard and set and you have to do forever. And the same thing with house hacking is, oh, if I do house hacking, then I have to become a real estate investor. You know, I started with student housing and affordable housing. You know, the the student housing was because I was in my 20s and a lot of my friends were students and that seemed like a tenant base I could relate with. The affordable housing side is from doing the nonprofit work and doing community development and rebuilding in places like Haiti and Indonesia and the Philippines to, you know, uh, slums of Nairobi, Kenya. I said, okay, great. You know, the the poor communities back in North Carolina is like, I can set myself apart from the slum lords and make good money and treat people well. And this would be an easy niche for me. And then as time progressed, uh, you know, there in 2016, I peaked at 40 units between some condos, wow. duplexes, quadruplexes, and was able to become an accredited investor. And then I started selling off a lot of my portfolio to invest in bigger deals that were run by other people. So that way... I didn't have to put in so much time and work into managing all my own properties. So 40 units and you're in your your late 30s now, that makes me wonder a little bit about debt. So how do you feel about leveraging debt to buy real estate? Do you have a, a threshold that you're comfortable with as far as how much of a property you would be comfortable financing versus actually like having the cash to put down on it? Yeah. So it's, I always hate the answer of it depends, yeah. but- well, it, it, it really does, does depend, yeah. right? So, you know, in my 20s, I didn't have a problem being leveraged. 
literally, I was like taking money out of an old 401k, taking money in out of an IRA. I was trying to do 100% financing. I used up every cash I had to buy properties to where I had no no cash left to continue buying. Then I started partnering with folks. Um, I did you know hard money plus a private second uh, loan, so that was 100% in. And then you know as I started to get in my 30s, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, we started getting more serious. You know you had more to lose potentially in a risk. And I started saying, you know, I don't need to be as risky anymore. So, you know, I went from didn't matter about debt and as far as the percentage. And I said, you know, if I'm 27 and I go bankrupt, big deal, I can start over again. Where now it's like, okay, great. You know, I got a wife and we've got a lot of stuff built up. We don't want to be that high risk. And then, you know, so it's changed over time. And I think that's perfectly fine for everyone. What you're comfortable with one day, you're, you might not be comfortable with you know, next month or next year, or 10 years down the road. And the others are definitely also on the property. So if the property has a lot of upside potential in it, I don't mind doing 100% financing or doing like a hard money financing, a higher rate with more points, uh, a more expensive loan if it lets me move quicker. And that single property is more leveraged just so I can get into the deal. And then I'm creating equity. So, you know, partly what we did with the, the, third house hack in uptown New Orleans. It was this old rundown abandoned corner store. I think we bought it for like 270 to 275. We put about a quarter million dollars into it. You know, I was essentially a hundred percent financed on it, mm-hmm. but we created, you know, at that time, I think we increased the value by 50, 60 grand. So by the time we were done, you know, we weren't a hundred percent leveraged. And then it was also a great cash flowing uh, property. So, you know, in the short term, I don't mind being very leveraged on a single property, but sort of across my whole net worth. Now I'm very, I guess, conservative on my risk tolerance. I, I don't want to be over leveraged. Hey, it's Chris. Can I jump in here for a minute and ask if you have thought about making your own podcast? If you have, you may have realized there's a lot more that goes into it than you might have thought. Don't worry. I have a gift for you. I want you to have my podcast quick start checklist. From what microphone and recording software you should use to how you host and distribute your show, I'm here to help with all of that and more. My podcast quick start checklist will walk you through everything you need to know to start your podcast. I'll show you what's actually important. To get my podcast quick start checklist, go to whomakesapodcast.com slash start and tell me where to send it. Now let's get back to the episode. Your website is Fibirea. Is that how you pronounce that? Yeah. So that's F-I-B-Y-R-E-I, and that stands for Financial Independence by Real Estate Investing. Is that correct? Yep. You have five goals that you have listed on your website that I'm going to read real quickly, which be invested in three to five metro statistical areas, produce returns of 12.5%, produce enough cash flow to enable an early retirement overseas, somewhere like Central America or Southeast Asia, start a donor-advised fund or family foundation, and raise $25 million for charity. How close are you to achieving these goals, and, and why did you set these particular goals? Yeah. So, you know, the three to five areas was, you know, I don't want to be tied all into, at that time it was North Carolina. You know, I felt 
North Carolina had tons of upside. I didn't think it was going anywhere, especially in the middle of the state. There'd be the occasional hurricane every eight or nine years, but it was pretty safe geographic area, had a lot of potential, but you never know what could happen 10, 15, 20 years down the road. So part of it was to diversify geographically, still be heavily invested in real estate. That one's definitely hit. The 12.5%, to me, that was just, there's two parts to it. One is I know if I'm investing in real estate, whatever cash I have in is has a 12.5% return or, or my total returns 12.5%, that'll let me double my money every about six years. And I knew I had the sort of longer term net worth goal I wanted to get to. And I said, well, here's where I'm at. If I can double this money every six years, I'll, I'll be there You know where I want to be in my uh, mid forties. Yep. Cash flow, we're, we're set on that. That's an e- easy one to do. And especially now that you know, we're still house hacking. Right now we're covering the mortgage while we're renovating, but that'll cover essentially all of our costs. Um, my wife and I were just talking the other day about, you know, doing a, a long sabbatical and trying out a place in Central America because we can rent out our side and, you know, bring in twenty five hundred, three grand a month in in cash flow. And that would more than cover um just this one property would more than cover a, a place for us to live in Central America or Asia and, you know, get us a, a, a decent place in uh, parts of Europe. I haven't done uh, the full donor advice fund yet. And then uh, raised 25 million for charity. I've just finished up a big contract with one nonprofit. I'm totaling up, but I think I'm somewhere around o- over my decade working in the nonprofit industry, about 21, $22 million that, that I've raised for those charities. So uh, almost to that goal. So you're going to have to set some new goals pretty soon then. I know, I know. It, I mean, that's the the good problem to have, right? Yeah. Like you, you eventually hit your goals, then then you got to find more uh, to to come up with. Have you thought about that at all? Yeah. Oddly enough, I'm thinking about getting back into affordable housing. Uh, there's a couple buddies of mine. We're all real estate investors. One's a doctor at a children's hospital. You know, one's a social worker. Um, and then with my wife and a, a couple other uh, friends that have also done well. Uh, that could potentially be investors and going back into affordable housing, you know, one, because you can make a decent return investing in that area, but two is just really, it's a way to make a positive impact in the community, you know, across the U S there's affordable housing issues. So it's sort of a, to me, looks like a, a good business to start um, for both financial reasons and then a social impact reason. And one of the things we've actually been looking at is, as we set that up, actually set that up as a, a B Corp or a benefit corporation. If you or any of your your readers are familiar with that model, it basically says you have to meet a certain amount of standards where you think things through, like who are your vendors, um, your supply chain, are you sourcing materials ethically, where they want you to be a profitable corporation, but your goal as a business isn't just the responsibility to the investors and shareholders. It's to investors, shareholders, communities, employees. Um, so it has this more holistic approach to, to running a business and they actually certify you as a uh, B Corp or benefit corporation. Okay. So not just uh, not just straight capitalism then? Yeah. It's a blend between being a nonprofit and being a uh, you know straight for-profit. capitalist yeah. for-profit business. Cool. That sounds like a great goal. I'm sure you'll I'm sure you'll do something like that if, if that's what you want to do. 
your podcast is the House Hacking Podcast, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But I'm I'm curious what it was about podcasting that drew you in. Like what what gets you excited about making a podcast? Yeah. So initially, oddly enough. I wanted a way to generate more traffic to my website. My website, yeah. I think original the first version was in 2017, which I scrapped and then rebooted in 2018 uh, with, with its current name. So it had been around a lot longer and I hated writing. And I said, well, great. I don't mind talking with folks. Like I'll go grab a coffee or a beer with a friend and we can talk about real estate for hours. So my thought was, okay, that's a good medium for me you know, video was definitely really starting to come up, but I was like, ah, I don't want to be on camera all the time and, you know, have to like, you know, brush your hair and, you know, <laughs> w- w- worry about the appearance side of things. So I was like, okay, potty, podcast, audio version, that's a great way to go. Um, and then I-, I looked at it as a way also to just build authority for, for the Five by Rhea brand. And is that still the, the primary purpose of the podcast? Is it is it a majority purpose to share information with other real estate investors or are you trying to drive leads to the website? Yeah. So there, there was two parts. I mean, there, there was like the business side of it of, hey, here's a website. We're expanding the brand. We're trying to drive traffic and leads. I, did, I always thought I wouldn't be able to because house hacking is such a niche in the real estate investing world. Mm-hmm. I never thought I would be big enough to attract sponsors. So I always thought like the monetization strategy was to just drive traffic to the website, which was then, you know, we had products and affiliate links and all that good stuff. But I, I specifically wanted to talk about house hacking because the question I always got was, Andrew, what's the easiest way, the quickest way, the best way to get started in real estate investing? And my answer was always house hacking. And I sort of got tired of talking about it with folks and, and repeating the same conversation. So I was like, you know, this would be a great podcast to start because it's such an easy way to get into real estate investing. So why don't we come in and document other people's stories? That way the listeners can hear the best practices um, of how they did it. And then one of the other things when I was starting the show, I really wanted to do, even today, most of the real estate shows are white guys talking to white guys and there's tons of amazing people killing it in real estate investing. And at that time, you know, at the end of 2019, it was even more so like the biggest podcasts out there were white guys interviewing other white guys. Yep. I made a specific emphasis of like, I can't do anything about myself, but let me make sure at least half of my guests are female. That first season, we ended up having about 60% of the audience was actually female real estate investors that were just absolutely crushing it. And they had a lot of successes. They had a lot of failures. They shared you know, the ups, the downs. I mean, we had one woman on the show. Uh, I love her to death. She, she was so open and vulnerable about how the whole process basically caused her and her boyfriend to go into couples therapy together uh, because they were renovating the home and all of that stress and you know now they're married so it was obviously a good experience for them in the end but that 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 purpose of the show to help folks and try to broaden the voice yeah was something i was intentionally trying to do just because i wanted to hear those experiences for myself um and i thought others could find them useful but that actually i found helped really drive the the show that's awesome i mean you you seem like a, a genuinely really good guy you know with with all the things that you're trying to do so that's really cool i appreciate it yeah has your podcast influenced how you're running your house hacks in any way 
not really. You know, so most of the conversations I've I've had with folks that are in their house hack, you know, they're sort of in their first one to five years of real estate and in, of investing experience. Where now, you know, I think I'm at 19 years uh, of doing this since I bought my first um, property uh, to now. So the, the experience level is quite different. I've used my experience to help guide those questions and yeah. know, you know, hey, you just glossed over something. I want to poke at that and prod at that a little bit more uh, because that's something really, really valuable that that you just mentioned for folks to listen to. Um, there are some occasional golden nuggets that have helped me where a new platform has come up about doing tenant screening or property management software. And that's let me actually try out some of that stuff. And when it's worked out well, I've come back and share that with the listeners of the show. Yeah. I was just going to ask you if they're, you know, obviously you're coming at it from maybe a more experienced place than your guests are, but you know, what, what would be maybe one of the best pieces of knowledge that you've gained from a guest that you might not have had before you did your podcast? It's that like, unwillingness to give up and quit. A lot yeah. of them were like, I don't know. It was across almost all of the guests, 80, 90% of the guests. It was like, I don't know everything. I know a little bit. I just have to get started where you learn so much more when you're actually doing the process. You know, And that's not only real estate investing. I think that's everything. Like You could read every article about running a podcast. You can take courses on it. But until you actually... like boot up the computer, plug in the mic, and then you realize you have audio issues or, you know, my first season, I said, awesome, probably like 52 times per episode. And I was like, okay, I got to break this little audio verbal tick. Yeah. You know, those are things until you get started, you're you're never going to be a hundred percent ready. And that's something that I really admired of all of the guests. So you're, you're on, uh, season four, season five, something like that. How long have you been podcasting? Is it has it been since 2017 or 2018? Whenever you re- rebranded the site, has the podcast been around since the beginning? We we launched December, I think it was 30th. It was a Monday of 2019. So I actually started. Okay. Re- my my goal with the first season was to actually record all 20 episodes, and I had it really mapped out. Of I actually had the first five seasons sort of mapped out of what I wanted to cover through the processes, where not to just dump everything on people all at once, but sort of have it as a discovery process for folks and get deeper and deeper as the seasons go on. That first season, I recorded all 20 guests and then aired it um, after that, which was both a good thing and then a bad thing. Why did you decide to go with seasons rather than episodic, uh, just a, a continuous line of episodes coming out? Uh, some of it is maybe I was a little bit lazy. <laughs> <laughs> In what way? Well, pu- part of it is recording a podcast takes work. A lot of folks think that are like, oh yeah, I want to do a podcast. I don't think they understand the amount of work that goes into it. We're trying to find guests, make sure the guest actually has an interesting story and they're good at having a conversation and talking. And then you actually have to do the recording. You got to do some prep work. Then afterwards, the post-production process, it, it's not something that, you know, you talk to someone for 45 minutes an hour and then you're good to go. There's prep before and after, you know, it, it definitely takes time. And I realized just from running the the website that I don't want to have that pressure and also that responsibility of doing it every single week, 50, you know, weeks out of the year, 52 weeks out of the year. Yeah. And as my wife and I were maturing and our portfolio were starting to sell off, a lot of it was 
we were trying to be a bit more intentional with my life. I mean, my, my wife still says I take on too many projects, but the idea of like, do I really want to take on a project where I've got to have an episode coming out every single week? I didn't want that. And that's where I joke where a little bit of intentional laziness. So I like the idea that I could put a lot of energy and effort on making a season really great. And then I could have some time off and then I could think about what worked well, what didn't, and then start planning the next season. You mentioned among a long list of things that it takes to put a podcast together, which I am very quickly discovering, uh, finding guests and making sure you can have a good conversation with them and that they have an interesting story. Where are you finding your, your guests that do these house hacks and how are you, how are you doing that vetting? What's that process look like? It's changed. And I, I think this is probably going to be a common thing that, that uh, comes up with all the questions that you, you've been asking me and probably will ask me is it's changed over time. So, you know, the first season, while the website was starting to get some traction, you know, the podcast wasn't out there. So getting guests to come on a show that they've never heard of was a little bit, you know, they're like, okay, who are you? And, you know, what, what, why do you want to talk to me? I just did outreach through, you know, forums. So, tons of Facebook groups that I was part of, whether it's a personal finance forum or a real estate investing forum. I just started searching other folks that were had done a house hack. Um, and then I also went out to my friends and folks that I had a sort of a previous relationship with. And I said, Hey, I'm trying to launch this first season. You've got a really good story. You know, remember that time I helped you out. Would you help me out here and be a guest on my show? You know, they would say yes, but a lot of it was just searching out in the forums and that gave me a way to sort of look up some background on folks and say, okay, yeah, here's their story. They talked about it at a couple posts. They did some posts on questions or challenges that they were running into. And that sort of helped me figure out, would they be a good guest? Is there an interesting story? You know, because I didn't want every story to be a hundred percent successful. We yeah. wanted to pull out some of those failures or challenges because that's where people learn from. Like, you know, I, I hate those real estate podcast stories where it's like, I went from zero to 3000 units in, you know, 16 months. And it was like, okay, yeah, that's like a one in a million story. There might be some lessons learned, but you know, I, I want that average person that did it and had challenges because more people are going to relate to that story. And now where I'm at, you know, we're recording season four right now. I don't have to um, really do anything. It's basically, I get DMs of folks asking to share their story. I get DMs of saying like, hey, my buddy just did this. I've heard your show. He would have a really good story. You know, past guests refer over folks. Um, so as far as when I'm interviewing folks that have done the house hack, you know, I, I've got more folks than I could probably interview in, in a season. We're also doing more technical episodes. We started in season three. So like we interviewed a CPA to specifically talk about the tax and accounting benefits and potential downfalls or challenges with real estate investing and house hacking. We've brought on founders of property management software companies. Um, we had a uh, someone from Furnish Finder is a platform where you can rent out to travel nurses. We had that founder come on. So we've tried to have those more technical guests to be as resources for everyone listening that wants to get into real estate investing. And those ones I've done more of vetting and, and outreach for, and those were from companies and products that, that I've used. So you're probably spending more time vetting guests at this point than you are 
finding guests, is there anything in particular that you're like, if somebody DMs you and says, I have a story I want to tell you, do you ask them for additional information? Do you, do you have a spreadsheet or a, a document somewhere that you're keeping track of all these people in? Yeah. So I, I have a, a VA virtual assistant that, that I've used for a couple of years. I've gone through, through a couple over, over the period of time, but the, the basics that I'll have is when someone reaches out, we ask them to just email a summary to Andrew. So, you know, I'll, I'll get that and say, Hey, could you give us like a paragraph or two on your, your experience? Mm -hmm. And then I'll get that, whether I'm getting the DM and asking them to email it or my VA is I'll look at it. And then that'll give me sort of a sense. And then I want to go to their social media and that tells me a lot. So are they doing an outreach specifically because they're trying to promote their own brand, which I'm okay with, but you know, you can tell a lot about, you know, reading through someone's social media, do they seem genuine? Do they seem disingenuous? You know, are they really, you know, someone that likes to brag and flex, you know, that's not the, the type of person that I want on my show. Um, so, you know, looking through someone's social media, it sort of gives me an idea of their personality, um, what their character is like. And, and that's really the, the basic vetting that we do. And then if I'm unsure or want some more information, I'll ask a little more details um, and I'll send over a basic set of questions that we ask. You know, I try to really dig in on the guests unique experience, but we try to cover a core set of questions of like how they find the property. How, how do they find tenants? Do they do any renovation, the purchase price, how they financed it? Um, you know, th things like that, that are sort of common between all the guests. How far out in advance are you looking at guests or, or trying to book guests? Like, How long does that process take you from the time somebody DMs you or messages you to the time that you're actually sitting down to record that interview with them? If, if I got the opening in my calendar um, and it's a, a guest that I think would be a, a really good fit, you know, I, I'll do the interview sometime you know, in the next day or two, okay. um, especially if there's a bigger guest that I really want to get on the show or a CEO of a company uh, or a founder of a company, you know, I'll flex my schedule to them versus other guests. I'll sort of send them a calendar link and say, okay, great. You can book a time. And like right now I have uh, no recording times open for, for the next month. Um, and I'm getting ready to, to block out some time. And then I'll email, I don't know, the 15 or 20 people that uh, I think have interesting stories and say, Hey, I've got some recording times open for March go, go ahead and, um, book a time. So yeah, it can be a couple of days to a month out before we actually sit down and do a recording. And then the air date could be another month or two after that. And then do you do any additional research on your guests or are you just going into it with the, the summary that they've given you? And then you have kind of a core set of questions that you try to work through, through every guest. Yeah, just just those core set of questions. I like it just to be a bit of a natural conversation, you know, uh, I'll look at some other stuff on social media where if they've done posts about their house hacking story, um, you know, was there a property fire or a flood? You know, one of the persons I interviewed, I saw on their their social media where they talked about they had some flooding in their kitchen. So that was like a note that I made of like, oh, this is something we definitely want to ask about. Um, but otherwise, I just try to have a, a conversation with folks on, on the spot. Do you listen to a lot of podcasts? I used to, and then. You know, when COVID hit, I really tried to learn video um, and photography okay. and then learning um, editing with Premiere Pro. So I essentially stopped listening to podcasts and 
Like I think before 2020, I would maybe watch two, three hours of YouTube a year. And, you know, I would be listening to two or three hours, four hours of podcasts a week at that time. And now it's no, no podcasts unless someone recommends a specific episode uh, of something that they know would relate well with where I'm at in life. Mm -hmm. And now it's, you know, deep diving on uh, YouTube with, you know, folks like Daniel Schiffer, Peter McKinnon, yeah. um, Chris and, and Becky, um, people that are sort of filmmakers, because I'm really trying to to learn that space. Yeah. Peter McKinnon's great. I, I love yeah. his channel. Uh, yeah. You can, you can really dive down the YouTube rabbit hole and, and, you know, there's a lot of really great content. I feel like there was a time maybe recently where someone would say, I, I watch a lot of YouTube and somebody might react like, oh, you're wasting a bunch of time. But no, there's there's a lot of great education to be had on there for free, which is great. Yeah, yeah, there, there really is. So do you, did you have anybody in mind, any sort of podcast host or show that, that you were thinking about emulating or that influenced the way that you are making your podcast now? Yeah, I really liked the the Choose Fi guys in... in especially their earlier, you know, first 50, 100 episodes of I really liked how they sort of gave an update. They had this sort of what I felt like was a good natural conversation between the two of them and then with their guests. Um, but the the person that oddly enough, you know, I was sort of looking up to or wanted to emulate actually wasn't another podcast host, was a, a boss I had, you know, years ago named David he just had this natural curiosity about people and he could sit down with someone and literally talk to them for three hours and they would walk away just blown away of like, Oh my God, like he was really curious. He asked all these great questions. He seemed like he was super interested and he just had this knack. He was charismatic, but natural curiosity. And that's something that I wanted to emulate of, well, if I actually get really curious, even though that, this entry-level real estate investing, it's been a while since I've done it, and maybe I won't learn. I'm really, if I'm extremely curious about why they wanted to do things, I felt that would make a really good show. And like I had mentioned, people ended up, I don't, I don't know why, but they ended up sharing so much stuff, like how they went into couples therapy. You know, we, we had someone else that she basically said on the show, because of house hacking that got her into real estate investing, that was why she felt she basically lived through fighting off breast cancer. Wow. Is because that set her up financially to um, then have the the resources and wherewithal to to actually, you know, have less stress in her life and have that financial resources to get the great medical care. And I, you know, having I think that curiosity with with your guests can end up making a great show. Yeah, I think that's probably necessary on a certain level. If you're going to be doing an interview show, if you're going to be asking questions of somebody, you have to be you have to be interested in, in what they're saying. Otherwise, it's going to be pretty obvious that you're just kind of phoning it in. So, yeah, that that definitely makes a lot of sense for for the show that you're making. What about education around actually producing a podcast were there any books that you read or or videos that you watched that uh influenced or educated you on how to actually make the show yeah and i'm trying to remember the i, I should have looked it up it was um it's a blog it's like the uh the podcast blog or something like that i read every single thing they had i mean they probably had like 150 articles at the time i literally read every single one 
Um, then I went to like uh, Sweetwater, yep. um, BH, um, Photo Video, Adorama, and like I read every review about every single mic, what people liked, what people didn't like. I went into forums of like, no, don't use the Scarlet, you know, get a Roadcaster or, <laughs> you know, condenser mic over uh, dynamic mic. And I just did a super deep dive on it. And then I did a post in one of the financial communities that I was a part of. And I said, look, you know, I'm getting ready to start a podcast. I know what I know and I know what I don't know. Like, does anyone have a good editor or anyone that's helped launch a podcast that can specifically help with this? Um, and then I got a couple of good recommendations to folks. And I had someone that sort of helped walk me through a equipment list and sort of what what I need, how to set up a, a podcast host, that sort of front end piece. Um, they actually, we did a couple test recordings together and then they did the editing. So part of that is they essentially, I committed to them editing the whole first season and they in turn sort of helped coach me through those first couple episodes and all the equipment set up. Nice. So you, did you not have much of a, a history maybe with audio recording before deciding to do your podcast? Uh, not really. I was a failed DJ and, you know, I, I played a uh, trumpet in middle school and a couple years in high school. So there's a tiny music background, music, but even yeah. then, like not really like nothing recording, uh, wise. Do you think, you know, reading the, the blogs and, you know, spending all of that time researching, did you run into any sort of a paralysis by analysis or anything like that where you're you're spending so much time thinking about doing the thing that you just that you didn't get in and, and actually start? Fortunately not. And you know that analysis paralysis is something that help that that affects a lot of people with real estate investing as well, but my goal was when I was starting the podcast like I knew when I wanted to launch it by I were, I I love building strategy and then implementing that strategy. So mm -hmm. to me, it was, I've got this period of time where I've got to take in all the information I can, then I got to quickly build a strategy and pull it out. But what I wanted to do when I was doing the deep dive is really distill why podcasts fail, what are the major complaints of podcasts or why folks don't listen. And there's a lot of things, but one of the, I, I was looking for those you know, little things, levers that you could push that would make a big difference. And one of the most common reasons why people wouldn't listen to a podcast over and over again was bad audio quality. So I realized, okay, that means I need to either have good equipment or have good equipment and then actually spend the time doing editing. So I knew I could speak fairly well. I could do the recording. I could buy some decent equipment, but I knew I couldn't learn the back end in a quick enough time period. So I ended up outsourcing that, that side of it. But yeah, that, that was why I, I didn't look at it as an analysis paralysis. It was, here's a short period of time to distill as much information as possible and figure out what are, are the, the, the little levers that are going to make the biggest impacts and then use that to build out my strategy. And your podcast is roughly two and a half years old. Is that right? End of yeah. 2019? Um, and yep. we're recording this at the end of February, 2022. How big is your podcast at this point? Like how, how many weekly listens or downloads are you getting? Yeah. So right now we're um, off season in between seasons and we're still getting seven to 800 downloads a week, which is relatively small. 
Um, as you probably know, the average podcast uh, new episode based on Lisbon stats gets like 120 to 140 downloads in a 30-day period. So being in the off season, we're still getting a lot of downloads from our back catalog. Yeah. Uh, when we're releasing new episodes, our new episodes are getting 1,500 um, downloads in the first uh, week and then hitting you know, more over the next two, three weeks. And, you know, our very first episode is still getting, you know, 80 to hundred downloads a, a, a month. So overall, I feel like we're, we're doing pretty well because I knew yeah. based on those stats, I would never be a podcast that would get, you know, a hundred thousand downloads per, per week. So my goal was if I could get 2,500 downloads a week, I felt I'd be in a pretty good uh, position. And for me, we hit that uh, easily when we're airing new episodes. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. That's definitely, you know, I would consider that a a successful podcast. I don't know how you define success for your podcast. Almost nobody's going to get YouTube numbers, right? It's just a different kind of platform. So, yep. you know, 700 to 800 a week off season definitely seems like a, a really good bit of momentum going into the next season. How do you stay motivated to continue making new episodes? Like, is, is it still fun going into, you're making season four, are you still enjoying it? Can you see yourself doing it for kind of the long term? Yeah, so the specific podcast, I don't think it'll be long term. You know, one of my goals when, when I was starting is I sort of thought there was four or five seasons, 100, 150 episodes, maybe 200, but because it was a entry-level way to get into real estate investing, I sort of felt like you could only talk about it so much. And I try to make a lot of the episodes as evergreen as possible. And then, you know, the podcast could could essentially stop or you do some updates every now and then. So I always thought it wouldn't go on forever. But at the same time, you know, we're producing now video series. We're in the middle of recording um, a giant renovation uh, on a from a tenant moving out to renovating to a tenant moving back in and actually working on a new series called Doors and Pours with another real estate investor. So she'll sort of talk about her experience from a female perspective. I'll talk about it from a male perspective. And it's geared towards helping folks that are sort of past their first year of investing or they have one or two properties, but now trying to go from two properties to 10 properties. So sort of long answer to, to that question as I didn't think house hacking podcast would go on forever, but I thought I would be producing content in some form uh, for, to help folks for, for quite a long time. Yeah. And uh, you know, that probably is a natural thing to have transition from one medium or one, one type of piece of content to another over time. I did have another question about your guests and I, I should have asked it earlier. I missed it. You talk a lot of specific numbers with your guests, like about how much their properties cost, what they're earning, you know, things that some people might shy away from discussing in a, yeah. in a normal conversation, particularly with a stranger, particularly with someone that, you know, they're being recorded. How do you approach that sort of a topic with your guests beforehand? Do you discuss beforehand? Do you discuss expectations with them? You know, have they been yeah. reluctant to do that? Yeah. So part of that is, you know, luckily the first season was harder. Now that we've got seasons out, people can listen to episodes and they sort of know what to expect. But I would send over a list of those common questions. And they're 
some people would be a little bit reluctant. I think that's just some of the culture in America is where you don't necessarily talk about what sex, uh, politics, religion, and money. Yeah. Um, so there, there are people be a little bit hesitant to talk about it. And the way I always approach it is, look, you know, what we're going to talk about is, is all generally public information. So if someone really wants to know, you know, what you bought your house for, I, I, while you might not be comfortable sharing for it, I can find it in two or three minutes. Yeah. You know, it's it, public. It's, yeah, it's public records. There's a tax record on it. Yes, you know, you may be hesitant to talk about what the property is going to rent for, but now there's so many resources out there. If you if you posted it for rent in the past, that listing's out there on the web. Or there, there's resources that can say, hey, this neighborhood, this many bedrooms, bathrooms, here's what the average rent is. So, you know, when I would sort of phrase it with folks, it's like, you know, we, we cannot talk about anything that you want, but I, I do need answers to like, what'd you buy it for? What's the type of financing? And then, you know, what, what's your payment? Um, what are you getting for rent? And that's all sort of public information that's, you know, easily at, sourced out there. Pe- people can find and, you know, 99% of people are like, Hey, that's great. I don't mind talking about it. What does typical production look like for, for an episode for your podcast? So from, the time that you record the episode to when the podcast gets out to the listeners, what does that process look like? Yeah, so I use a project management software called uh, Asana. Um, I use that for basically everything under our media company, from website, written articles to videos to you know the actual podcast. So, you know, once we hit record, we do the conversation. Um, I should add the first two seasons were audio only. The third and now the fourth season are both audio and video. So, you know, once I'm done doing the recording, I hit stop and then I start actually uploading everything. So I have a company um, based in the UK that does all my audio editing. Um, I simply put it in Dropbox and then I log into our sort of dashboard and put the notes in there in the link to download it. And I say, you know, here, put in this advertising spot. Uh, here's the custom intro I recorded. Here's the episode. You know, here's a custom outro or a mid roll. Um, I do the same thing. Upload uh, a link with the video to our uh, video editor who's in the Philippines. I also have the raw audio for our show notes writer to actually start writing the show notes. And then once everything comes back, my VA starts to compile it. And take the show notes, put it up on the website, um, schedule it out. They'll put it in YouTube to schedule it out. And then uh, we'll put it in our uh, Podbean podcast host to, to put it out for the, the release date. And then my VA starts to do social media graphics and stuff around uh, the episode. So we'll cut little short clips that we've thought were really impactful or beneficial um, and, and use those for social media. And then when the release day comes for the episode, you know, everything's sort of done. So you're fairly hands off then as far as, you know, the, the production side of it goes after you record the episode, after you have the conversation, you have a, a team of people that are doing a lot of this additional work for you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it didn't start that way. And, and now a days, you know, I, a lot of the times I won't even go back and review an episode. I was just going to ask it, you that. Yeah. The, the first draft comes back from, you know, the video editor or the audio ed- editor, because we have our, our show notes writer is going through it and my VA is going through it. And then they'll just flag me of like, Hey, you know, there's an issue here or that this seems a little funny. 
or the editor will catch something and, and bring it up. So it, a, a lot of the times it's fairly hands-off um, and that, that's the way I, I've tried to build it. So I'm a little bit curious about that. You have a company that does video editing. You have a separate individual or company that does the audio editing. Yep. How how are you making sure, how are they making sure, if you know, that the uh, you know the audio and the video sync Yep. So I actually re- record it all. I use Riverside FM. It's yep. a o- online platform, just like Zoom. It can record an audio and video. It records HD video. And then I use a, a Rodecaster uh, Pro soundboard and then Adobe Audition. And I'll record the audio automatically. And then Riverside records backup audio and the video. So my video editor actually will as he's cutting the video together, it automatically clean, he'll clean up some of the audio. And that audio to me is good enough for YouTube and social media. Yep. But it, to me, it, it's not high enough quality editing specifically for podcasts, like when you're out in a car. And that's where I, I use uh, music uh, radio creatives out of the UK uh, to do the podcast editing. And that's specifically their niche. I'm big on hiring experts, right? So a great video editor is not always the best audio engineer or vice versa. Um, So I use that UK company specifically for the audio version of the podcast that gets pushed out to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, you know, all of those. And then the video editor uh, for all the video clips and what we'll push out on YouTube. Okay, so that that answers my question. And technically, then you have you have two separate versions of the podcast going out. You have one with video that's probably cut slightly different, and one with yep. just audio that's that's different. I see. And I actually think it's important to do that because the the way you edit something in video, some you know some folks will just minimize the browser and let the audio go in the background, and mm-hmm. you know that's fine coming out of the computer, but. To hold someone's attention on video, you need to insert some graphics or do some different cuts or switching back and forth between who's talking and who's on the screen. And to me, that's a different skill set to meet a different uh, viewer's need versus the audio side of things. You've made it a point uh, to highlight on your podcast that you have a, a, a new show notes page for your episodes. Uh, what did you change from the old show notes page to the new one? And, and why'd you do that? Yeah. So I, you know, I'd almost say we're on three versions of it. So, you know, the, the first version was essentially a summary, couple paragraphs, and then I included a transcript. And the idea was, you know, like I'd mentioned beginning of the show, you know, I want to drive traffic to the website. So I need to have some sort of show notes page. Version two was as I started to learn more about SEO and was able to bring on a writer to, to write my show notes let me make these a little bit more useful and impactful. Now we're writing a six to 800, sometimes a thousand word blog post that's based around the article. It's a good summary. We're including links and more resources. So, you know, in a show notes page, we'll link to other articles that are useful. So, you know, we had a guest talking about the house hacking leapfrog strategy. We had an article that we actually wrote about that. So we included a link to that article. And the goal with that was, could we make those show notes pages more useful so more people would go there? So there's sort of the business side of it. Um, but then also I wanted to, as I un- under- learned more about SEO and understood it better, is can we write this blog post to get more organic traffic? So 
you know, I think we're still ranked in the top one to three spots. So if you type in like house hacking in New York City or house hacking NYC, that show notes page comes up usually in the top three uh, spots. And there's not a ton of searches for that, but that usually puts 100 people to the website a month to that specific show notes page. And that's a, a way we've helped grow traffic to the website and helped grow the show. So they'll go to that show notes page and then they'll read the blog post and skim it and then be like, okay, now let me go listen to the episode. So that was sort of the second version. And then the third version, we redesigned the graphics for the page. Um, So we're still doing the SEO optimized article, including a lot more links and resources. But then we wanted to do things with some graphics, make the page design better uh, to do call outs, sort of call to actions for, as an example, a sponsor or do like a pro tip section so that way it's more useful to the the reader, the listener, and also um, has higher conversion rates uh, on the website. And are you still doing a, a full transcript of the episodes? Nope. I dropped that out after sort of that first version. Um, and I think there's a little bit of debate on this, but one of the things that I learned is when when Google's algorithm looks through a page, it looks at you know a, an SEO score... And then it also has something called a readability score. So mm-hmm. if you put if you dump the transcripts on there, the way we talk isn't the way we write. Yeah. So the readability score I noticed on those show notes pages was in the dumps. And I felt like that could potentially hurt my organic ranking for those uh, pages. So Interesting. I opted to just not do the transcripts anymore in... No one ever complained. No, no one ever came back to ask me for the transcripts. Um, so I yeah. just stopped doing it, and and you know, well, it, it didn't cost me a lot of money. I was using a service to do the transcripts. It was a couple bucks per episode, but I said, why, why spend the money if no one misses it? And no, no one is asking for it. That's interesting because I, you know, I put full transcripts up on my pages, and the idea has been for SEO purposes. Thinking that, you know, if, if a guest mentions something or, or a, uh, we have a conversation about a particular search term that Google would find within the transcript, you know, maybe that would help elevate the organic traffic to the website. But, you know, I, it's, it seems like it's just like anything in life. You have people telling you one thing and then somebody else comes and, and gives you a valid reason for the exact opposite. So, you know, what's, what's the real, what's the, what's the best thing to do? I don't know. Yeah. Well, one of the tools that some of your listeners might like is I use a plugin on my uh, WordPress website called Yoast, uh, Y-O-A-S-T. And the Yoast plugin will actually scan the article or your show notes page and say, hey, here's how it's looking for a keyword or keyword phrase. And here's the readability score. So not only was the readability score really low, it was actually flagging me for like keyword stuffing. So Mm, it would be like... Your audio, you said house hacking 50 times over an hour and a half. In an article, if that was going to be part of your your, your long tail keyword, you wouldn't have it in there so many times. Yeah, so maybe you're getting penalized. Yeah, so I don't know a true right answer, but I found it saved me a couple of bucks by not having to use a transcription service. And yeah. then, you know, I, I also realized my, my time on... One of the things you can track is how long people spend on the page. And I noticed as we 
built out a longer article and then we did the graphic update to the show notes page, our time on the show notes pages has continually increased, even with us taking out those transcripts. So maybe if I were to add those transcripts back in, people would stay even longer. It's something I could always test. But um, yeah, again, I, I don't know 100% what the right answer is. Yeah. How are you driving growth to your podcast? One was just sort of, we talked about optimizing those uh, show notes pages yep. for SEO. Um, or uh, SEO, right? So, you know, we'll try any major city like House Hacking Seattle, House Hacking New York, House Hacking Ch- Chicago. Um, then we'll also, when we have guests come on that have a bigger audience themselves, we, you know, we've been fortunate to build some good relationships with folks that have, you know, 70, 100,000 um, subscribers on YouTube where they've come on our show. So we'll specifically optimize that page around their name and real estate or house hacking. So when someone types in, you know, that, that YouTuber's name, you know, obviously their stuff's coming up, but our show notes page is coming up pretty high as well. Um, when we have folks on from, like a property management software or a platform that can help real estate investors, you know, we'll optimize that around SEO for a review of that company. And that's helped us really get organic growth. Um, then I've also spent a little bit of money on ads for video views on Facebook and Instagram. Okay. You can get, you know, for every episode, what we've tried to produce towards the end of season three was we have the main video and then we'll produce five or six short video clips that are, you know, 30, 60 seconds, two minutes or three minutes. So what I'll do is when we post them on social media at the end of the week, whatever one did the best or one or two that did the best, the next week I would actually put a little bit of advertising dollars in boosting it or whatever the, Facebook boosting those. Yeah. Yep. And and specifically would target them to, you know, people interested in personal finance and real estate investing. So, you know, it's sort of a, Hey, here's six clips that I think are interesting and people get value out of, out of those six, here's the ones that people actually like the most. And then I would boost those to a new audience. And then that would help get additional views, get page likes and follows. Um, and you know, Costs have gone up a little bit, but you know you could get like two, three, four cents uh, video views um, on you know fi- Facebook for those short sixty-second clips, and you know it doesn't take much, you know five or ten bucks, and you get tons and tons of views on those videos. And if you have a good call to action on that post, um, and it's something that's useful and interesting, we ended up getting some uh, good good traffic out of those. And you can, can you tie that back directly to the boosted post? Like I, I know Facebook yep. has a, uh, I think they call it the Facebook pixel that you can install on your website. And that kind of will track users across Facebook's properties that, that also visit your website. Are you, is that what you're using to do that? Yep. So it, Facebook, I mean, you hate them and both love them at the same time. Yeah. But their ad hate platform them as a person awesome. and love them as a business. Yeah, because I mean, it'll literally say like, here's how many people saw this boosted post. Here's how many engage with it. Here's how many watched three seconds of the video. Here's how many watched 25% of the video. Here's how much watch 50%, 75%. Here's how many watch 90% of the video. Very few watch 100% because they know when the video is about to end. So they click off, but they, they have all that data. Then they say, here's how many people went to the website or w- whatever the main action was out of it. And the Facebook picked pixel lets you track people going to your website. Um, so to me, it's been a great resource to help sort of broaden the audience of the show. 
Do you use any sort of listener stats to kind of make any decisions about what types of episodes you're going to put out? Or are you just, we're, we're going to interview people and, you know, whatever they have to say, we'll find that interesting and, and run with it. Yeah. So some of that has just been a little bit of my gut of what do I think an interesting perspective would be, especially during the first and second season when it was sort of newer. And then as I start to, to notice, I could test different headlines for podcasts and that would sometimes help, but we could look at, you know, the average listen. And then that would, I would try to gather out of like, okay, why did this episode do double what all the other ones did? And I would go back and listen to it two or three times. I'd look at the headline, the description to try to distill some information out of that. Um, but what I found that seemed to work really well for me was this sort of, um, I don't want to call it like Goldilocks thing, like right size, but I specifically started in season three was try the strategy of small guest, medium guest, big guest, small guest, medium guest, big guest. And the idea was there's someone out there that literally will only have 50 people on Instagram, but they have an amazing story. So mm -hmm. they're not going to help really, you know, that if they share it, they're going to share it to their 50 followers that are family and friends and only one or two might listen to the episode. That's not going to get me a lot of, you know, uh, growth, but my existing audience will love that story. Then there's the medium folks where they're trying to grow a brand or they're trying to grow a following and they have a pretty good story and then they can share it. And then there's the bigger folks where some of them won't take the time to share and they feel like they're doing you a favor to be on your show but it's such a big name where just by having their name in the title is going to get your get get you um, a, a lot of views. So uh, that that approach of trying to go between small, medium, and big guest, and and rotating between those three, really, I felt get, gave me a lot of good um, growth as well. And I sort of distilled that strategy from some of the listener stats from the first two seasons. Yeah, I like that. You know, as hopefully as this podcast grows, I can start making some of those sort of conscious decisions. At at this point, I'm kind of taking everybody that comes and says they want to be on the show, which is great. You know, I love it. We we all start there, right? <laughs> Unless yeah. you're you're well known, it's it's hard to get those first first guests for for season one. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate you you know jumping on and talk to me. I'm I'm sure you're on the uh, bigger guest side of things, so you know I I, I would I say media, that. media, okay, no 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 problem, man. I I love uh, <laughs> helping folks out, especially you know, content creators in the podcast or, or video space. What is the uh, technical setup that you're using for your podcast? What kind of, I, I know you said Adobe audition, you're recording your audio in, yeah. what about your microphone, headphones, computer, any of that? Am, am I allowed to say it's changed over time? Absolutely. I was, that's right, that's the right. follow-up question. How's it changed? Yeah. Part, part of it was, again, you know, when I was distilling that information, bad audio was something that turned folks off. So I said, great, post-production, I'll outsource to an expert. So let me spend a little bit more money on stuff. I've got um, Rodecast uh, uh, Pro for the soundboard. It's hooked up to my computer. We rec uh, record everything right into Adobe Audition. I originally used Zoom to interface with guests. I use Riverside now, but my Rodecaster Pro, I can actually plug my phone right into it. So if a guest wants to call in, uh, they can do a phone call in if we want. And then I, I sort of had that as my main setup. And then I added a uh, Canon EOS R, uh, sort of a higher end uh, mirrorless camera that rec 
record in uh, HD to record the video side of it. Um, and then as I started doing video, I started adding like a key light, a fill light, a backlight. And then when we moved into the, the property and we're in right now, when we were renovating it, I actually stuffed all the walls in my office with a sound dampening insulation. And then I started to get the art uh, that you could print uh, pictures on this canvas that had sort of sound isolation and deadening in it. So I think I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah. Look, look around my room. There's all the pictures actually have that special sound absorption in it to reduce reverb and echo. And then I have some other sound blocks in specific spots just to help kill out some of that reverb um, in, in echo in the room. You said the Rodecaster Pro is your, your mixing board. What about the microphone? What microphone are you using? It's the uh, Rode Broadcaster one. Um, okay. I'm forgetting the exact name of it, but I specifically wanted to use a dynamic yeah. mic. You know, a condenser mic, what I distilled was it would give you a better quality, but it could pick up, you know, the, the phrase I always kept he hearing is like, it could hear a mouse fart, you know, yeah. a mile away. So unless you had a actual real studio, a condenser mic was challenging to go with because right. it meant more work on the post-production side. Not necessarily bad, but uh, so I, I've always gone with the dynamic mic. Yeah, I had a, um, I'm on a, a Rode pod mic now. I did two episodes with the Rode Procaster, Podcaster. I can't remember. It's it's the step up from this microphone. I think I got a bad copy of it though because it was um, it sounded super compressed and there was a lot of artifacts on my voice. Um, so I sent it back and, and got this one. It's cheaper and I think it sounds great. So I'm happy with that. You said your your gears changed over the years. Did you have a different microphone when you started? Yeah. So I I had a portable. It was like that AT twelve hundred USB mic. Okay. Just straight into the computer. Yeah. So you could plug it into your computer and you could also you know, plug it right into the uh, Rodecaster Pro board. I guess it was maybe the first five episodes and some of my test episodes, we just recorded directly into the computer while I was getting everything else set up. And then um, all the sound paneling and insulation was something that happened uh, starting in season three. Nice. One, one of the other things I, I added, or I guess two little things. One is I noticed I have a lot of that uh, air popping, lip smacking. So I added a wind filter on my mic um, even though I'm indoors and I found that helped me. And then as I moved into the new property, I added on a, I forget what it's called. It's the little cage you can put your mic in to stop any vibrations. Yeah. So like I'll get excited and start bouncing my knee and then it shakes the floor and shakes the desk and then shakes the mic. So that was something that I noticed where that little bit of a vibration could sometimes be picked up. And where I added that little cage that holds the mic, you know, it was like 30 bucks. It just helped sort of step up the audio a little bit more. Yeah. I'm blanking on what that's called too, but it's some kind of suspension thing. Yeah. little suspension harness rig. Yeah. I'm sure everybody listening is going, it's called this. And they're just like <laughs> screaming it. But uh, yeah. Well, Chris, you can, you can put it in your show notes or your description, okay. what, what it actually is. Okay. You end your your episodes with a segment called the famous six. How did you decide on those questions? Yeah, so some of it was what I thought would be interesting to guess and what I thought was interesting to me. You know, we obviously want to produce a show that's valuable for the listeners, but we got to have fun while we're doing it. And you know, I love traveling, so 
obviously I was going to ask, you know, two of the questions were going to be based around traveling. Uh, the first two, you know, personal finance book and then real estate book or resource. It actually started as a book and then I turned it into, you know, book, blog, podcast, resource, because mm-hmm. I wanted to start to highlight other people that were creating great content to help folks and, and use that as a way to, you know, here's two things that are, I think are really fun. Um, you know, travel, where have you been? It sort of talks about people's characteristics. Like, you know, we had one guest who was like, oh my God, I would never go anyplace international, but I've been to like 40 state parks and I'm like, that is so cool. And then, you know, other folks that are like, oh, I've done a trip to North Korea. And I'm like, that's really cool too. Yeah. So you, you, you sort of learn about a different side of someone than maybe what we covered in the show were those first two, you know, personal finance, real estate. And then, you know, the, the bucket list thing is sort of a life's bigger than money and personal finances. We need money to get by. It's a huge part of life, but you know, what's something aspirational we want to do. And that sort of, to me was, I thought was interesting. It goes back to that curiosity um, about people. And then, you know, something fun, like some of the stuff people bring up, I'm like, that's really cool. Like you, you get to learn about who that person is. And I, I thought listeners would enjoy that. Well, I'm not going to leave my listeners hanging. So if you're up for it, I'd like to ask you your own famous six questions as we near the end of this episode. Oh man. So you sent me prep questions, but I don't remember reading those ones in there. They were, so, they yeah. were not shoot. in there. Yeah. 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 All right. Shoot. Uh, let, let's see what I can come up with. Number one, what is your favorite personal finance related resource? Yeah. So yeah, this is a really good one. I love the choose five podcast, especially those first hundred episodes. You know, I've referred that show over to folks to, to so many different folks and not just go listen to the show, but they had so many great episodes early on. They're still doing great episodes, but it was so easy to pull out one, two, three episodes and say, Hey, this is exactly where you're at in your life. You need to listen to this episode or, Hey, you're a teacher. This episode has on a teacher. That's a multimillionaire through maximizing all the retirement plans available to teachers. Um, So it's just been for me, a huge personal finance resource and one that I really recommend to folks. What is your favorite real estate related resource? Yeah. Nowadays it's uh, YouTube. I mean, there's so many great content creators and and great real estate investors that are documenting their, their stories on online that, um, you know, depending where someone's at, if they're trying to get into wholesaling or flipping or buy and hold, um, there's great shows that, that I'll recommend for, for folks on there. Okay. Question three, what is, what has been, I have it written down. What is been, what has been your favorite travel destination so far? There's so many, probably, uh, Petra in Jordan, you know, ever since like, you know, being an old, older millennial, uh, Indiana Jones was something I, I grew up watching with my dad and then my younger brother in that, I think it's that third episode when they're going into like, find the, the goblet chalice thing was actually filmed in Petra Jordan and we went there in 2019 and it was just beautiful country, but like phenomenal, uh, going and walking up to the treasury. It's just uh, amazing. Italy's probably my default, like go-to I've been five times and, mm-hmm. uh, going back in, uh, th- this weekend. So that's always a country I, I keep going back to, but probably right now favorite is, um, Petra and Jordan. 
And what is uh, what is next on your travel vacation list? Italy this weekend? Are you, where, where in Italy are you going? Yeah, so it'll be Milan, uh, London, and then uh, Vienna. So um, g- going for a couple couple different things, meeting up with some friends, potential nonprofit that is looking to bring me on board, and then we're looking at uh, down the road some economic visa opportunities. Where if you invest in real estate in other countries, they basically give you a green card for a couple of years uh, that you can renew. So it would be a way for us to go live in, in Europe without having to leave every 90 days um, to renew a tourist visa. You just got to buy one of those dollar houses that they have in Italy. I mean, those are pretty attractive. Um, <laughs> but you know, now they even have, so many of them are doing telecommuting and freelance uh, visas where you can come for a year if you prove you have you know, income and you can work remotely. Nice. Um, so th- there's just a lot of opportunity I, I think to move around and, and have more freedom um, that I would say is a silver lining out of the COVID crisis. All right. Question five, what is your biggest bucket list item that you have not accomplished yet? Raising that 25 million for charity. Getting close. And then question number six, what is your favorite life hack? Uh, last pass, you know, and I actually learned about last pass from the choose five guys. Yeah. You know, I, I think it was like one of their questions or I can't remember how it came up, but you know, especially everyone has tons of passwords. But then as I started building out the website and the podcast and like, it got up to where I had like two or 300 passwords from all these different things. And then, you know, shopping websites and Amazon. And I'm like, you know, everything was the same or a slight variation. And then LastPass stores it all and you can create unique passwords. Um, That that right now is, is, is usually my constant life hack that just makes life easier for me. Yeah, I used to use LastPass. Uh, it was great, and then um, I, I got, I'm I'm cheap, so they they started charging for something, and uh, I I jumped ship to Bitwarden, which is free and open source, but it, same thing. Um, oh, cool. Password manager, fantastic. Everybody should absolutely have one. By the way, thank you for doing that. That that was not on the prepared questions list, and I definitely kind of just thought it would be fun to see what your answers were. I don't know if anybody's had the opportunity to ask you your own questions yet. So No, no, that's a first. So it, you, you caught me off guard, but it was fun. Yeah. Uh, what's one of the most important lessons that you've learned about podcasting since you started making your show? The, the quality of the audio makes a really big difference uh, as, as far as the user experience. And then personally was my, my audio and verbal tics. I used awesome so much. I still, a lot of people use the and ums. Yeah. I've tried to reduce those, but the awesome was something that anytime I thought something was interesting or exciting, I'm like, that's so awesome. That's so awesome. Uh, So that was something personally I learned. I I needed to cut out of my vocabulary. I have a number of those that I'm aware of that I try to, to handle as I'm going through this that I've noticed, you know, as I'm interviewing people, but it's, it's hard to not just fall back on them. And uh, I don't want to sh- shout them out in case it, it's, it becomes something grating to people as they listen. Well, w- worst case, if people, I, you know, you can always joke, pe- people can make a drinking game out of it, yeah, right? So yeah, figure yeah. out what our audio tics, our verbal tics are <laughs> as, as pod hat, podcast hosts. And then, you know, listen to our episodes, you know, in the evening and, you know, t- t- take a shot every time we, I, I say awesome too much or whatever right. you, yours right. are. Uh, is there anything else that we should talk about? Did we miss anything that you wanted to cover? 
No, no. I, I think we really covered everything. You know, maybe one sort of closing point I, I'd want to say is, you know, as folks start your podcast, look at different ways to monetize it. You know, I was fortunate to get a sponsor for the the last half of my third season and then for the the launch of my fourth season. I actually never thought I would get a a, a sponsor for the show, but there's so many different ways you can monetize your podcast, whether that's selling a digital product you create, uh, using affiliate links, or actually finding a, a a sponsor. But I actually specifically didn't look for any sponsorships. And then opportunities came to me once I got into that third season. And they were folks that I had actually been doing business with. You know, one of my really good affiliate programs is a, it's called Easy Landlord Forms. I, you know, when I started talking with them, I was like, you know, I've been using you for a while. Can you actually look up when I made my account? And they're like, Andrew, you've been using us since like 2013. Like you're, you're one of our longest continuous wow. customers. And they're like, you're approved. Like, no problem. Like we, we want you in the program. Yeah. And I just found like, hey, this is a resource that I've been using as a real estate investor. So whatever your niche is, figure out the tools in, in companies and programs that you use and help make your life easier. And then see, go to their website and scroll all the way down the bottom. And, and a lot of them will say affiliate program or affiliates and click on that. And that could be a great way to help monetize your, your podcast. I think that's a, a great point to make. And, you know, it's good to remind people that it, just because you're trying to monetize your podcast doesn't necessarily mean it needs to be a, a business. You know, if you get a couple hundred bucks a month, that could go a long way towards a new microphone or soundproofing your room or, or whatever it is. And, uh, you know, figuring out a way to, to make the podcast more sustainable to continue maybe through that monetization is always a good thing. Well, how about this? If you don't like this, Chris, you can cut it out in post-production. If you do like it, look up whatever the cage thingy is I'm talking about, and, and yeah. you can put an Amazon affiliate link. So if folks are loving your show, Chris, they can go to the show description and click that affiliate link. doesn't cost them any more money, but it helps support you and your show. Appreciate that, yeah. Affiliate link in the in the show notes below or, or wherever you're listening of the suspension cage thingy yes. that we can't remember the name the of thingy i'll call the link that too uh where, where can people find you where do you want to send people yeah so the house hacking podcast is easy to find us on on all the uh, social media uh we have the handles and then obviously in you know spotify apple podcast and then our website's f-i-b-y-r-e-i.com great uh, Andrew, thank you so much for hopping on with me and you know sharing about your podcast and you know letting people know what you got going on. I really appreciate it. I had a ton of fun. I think I learned a lot about house hacking and about making podcasts. Um, just you know, you're doing stuff differently than than a lot of the guests that I've had on. But it, it seems like you put a lot of thought into it, and that's you know it makes a lot of sense to me. So thanks for sharing all of that with me and and with my guests. Yeah, no problem, Chris. It was great uh, coming on the show with you. That was my conversation with Andrew Kerr, founder of Phi by Rhea, real estate investor, nonprofit director, and host of the House Hacking Podcast, which can be found on all of the major podcast networks. You can also find Andrew at phibyrea.com. That's F-I-B-Y-R-E-I.com. My name is Chris Cookley, and you can find me at whomakesapodcast.com. 
If you enjoyed this episode, it would be an enormous help if you shared it with your friends or left a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you host a podcast and would like to be my next guest on Who Makes a Podcast, let me know. Go to whomakesapodcast.com slash guest and tell me about your show. This is Who Makes a Podcast. I'll be back next time with another conversation with another incredible podcast host. Thanks for listening.